Our Father, we, we have been bruised once again. Uh, we are a hurting people. We hurt because loved ones in the covenant family hurt. Our prayer is today, as we have prayed in the last two days, our prayer remains the same. We pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you will comfort this family. Fathers, we've sung this morning of the resurrection and hope and life. We thank you that as the people of God, we can stand here in the midst of suffering and heartache and even the pains of death and rejoice to know that we live because Christ lives. We rejoice today in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we lay hold of the promise of the resurrection of the dead. That day when the graves will open and all of our loved ones who have gone before us will be reunited with us. And then in body and soul, we will worship the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior forever. We long for that day. In the meantime, Father, deal with us tenderly today. Comfort this family, mother and father and brother and sister. And Lord, where human hands leave off, we pray, that Holy Spirit, that you will take over and bring healing to this family and begin that process even now. Father, uh, we sung this morning the reality of the gospel, that we live this life with no guilt, and we live for the future and the hope of the resurrection, all because of the wondrous gift of the life of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that gift today. We worship you in spirit and truth. You alone are God. You are sovereign God. And we, we love you with all of our hearts. And we pray that the deeds and the life that we live this week would be a reflection of that passionate love that we have for you. We pray your blessings upon the rest of this service. Bless the preaching of the word. And Lord, as we celebrate the sacrament this morning, we are reminded of the passion of the Christ. And we love him, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have a treat for you this morning. We have word from Kiev, Ukraine, where Jimmy and Susie are serving. I think this weekend, actually, they're in Prague, but uh, this is a recorded message from Europe. you from Kiev, Ukraine. You who are beginning to enjoy spring there in Memphis, Tennessee, spring has not yet arrived at Kiev. Actually, when we got here, it was snowing and somewhere around 10 to 15 degrees. Um, we have sought primarily not to enjoy the outdoors, but just to stay warm while in the outdoors. I have often said that uh, one of the things that I want with people coming to Kiev is that I want them to see the ministry that I so love, Music Mission Kiev. Uh, on Saturday, they got to see the things that I hoped that they would get to see. One of the things I think you know that we do at Gracie Van is pay for the distribution of food to 120 widows. Well, we stood in a small room and uh, distributed food to a few of those widows. I had in my mind that our monies were buying two big old grocery sacks of food and to watch them hungrily and eagerly and gladly uh, make this journey over to this cold room so that they could pick up four items 
The thing that, that I sensed and walked out of there with was, we have got to do more. We have got to do better. They get one of these, seven portions. This is meat for the week. We all start with widow's food. We visit them in their home and present the gospel. If, after a certain period of time, let's say after a year and a half, if they refuse to have a visit, if they refuse to let us come in and talk to them about the gospel, we tell them we're going to have to take them off the list if, we can't, if they will not see us at least one time. But we, they are not forced to make a profession, just to listen. All of those women that you saw today, and men, I would say 90% of them received widow's food first and then came to Christ from atheism. Two cataract operations on each eye sponsored by the mission, and now she can see. Viva Karashov! Viva Karashov! Oh, she sees very well. Last year, when Susie and I watched this, it wasn't in this place, it was in a different place, but when I watched all these people walk in here and saw them giving out four items, that's when Grace Venture was born in me. When I started thinking, you mean they get four items and that's all they're going to eat all week long? What we're doing in Grace Venture was born and the distribution of this food. And I hope you can see the, uh, the delight in these widows' eyes as they pick up what you have bought for them, uh, totaling this year five food items. And uh, I guess I should say we still have more to do. As you know, uh, Grace Venture, the funds raised by Grace Venture are being managed by a Grace Venture committee. Uh, Grace Venture committee uh, allotted $2,000 for us uh, as a team from Gracie Van to buy shoes for the babushka. Of course, the babushka are um, uh, 70, 80-year-old women who have uh, $9 retirements and are basically penniless. So um, our group of 11 was uh, separated into five groups and we all took 14 babushka apiece and went and shopped for shoes in a market that was wall-to-wall um, -wall people. And um, we were trying to fit shoes on. And, you know, I had this problem. I, I can't bend over from the waist uh, like I used to. Well, these dear old ladies could hardly bend over to get the shoes uh, up. So uh, you might see me on the ground pulling shoes over 80-year-old um, feet um, that have um, grown large over the years. Came in, bought his shoes. He was done. He bought his shoes. The only man. Uh, so we bought the shoes in this crowded market. It was it was quite a delight to be able to uh, to see their enjoyment of getting a new pair of shoes. Actually, anything we give them is so appreciated, and they can't thank us enough. So we continue to plead with you uh, to uh, pray for us as we're away. We believe that this God of ours is one who hears our prayer. So we um, we hope you and will. Remember us. By the way, hope you're enjoying the March to Discovery. Uh, when uh, by the time we're finished with this month, we're, our hope is that everybody at Gracie Van knows their spiritual gifts and we can plug them in. 
Uh, I miss you already. We're, we're almost uh, a week into this, and we'll see you in a little over three weeks. Thanks to Jeff Hardy for taking uh, the opportunity to put that video together. Jeff and his wife, Melissa, were with some of the other team that went over last week and joined uh, Jimmy and Susie there in Kiev, and he was the one who produced that video for us. I hope, guys, that after seeing a video like that, it would maybe excite some of you that haven't taken a trip with us yet to go to the Ukraine. We'll be going there uh, fairly often in the coming years. We have what we call a strategic investment there in that ministry and Music Mission Kiev, and you'll have an opportunity to join us on one of those trips. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 20. Paul writing says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a prediction to make. Not a prophecy, it's just a prediction. And that is, at the close of this year, nine months from now, when we look back on 2004, when we do one of those year at a glance, my prediction is that the most talked about subject, at least for the first half of this year, will be the passion of the Christ. Isn't it amazing to you that one of the centerpieces of the Christian faith The crucifixion of Christ has become so talked about almost by everyone in this country. I did a little research on Wednesday, and this is the latest statistics I have. But as of Wednesday, March the 10th, the Passion of the Christ, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, has grossed almost, had grossed almost $230 million. I did a little math to that, and, and this is conservative estimate. And some of you who are mathematicians can check my figures and correct me, and I'll make the correction in the next hour. But my math tells me that about, this translates into about 33 million tickets sold for the Passion of the Christ. So my question this morning, what I want to talk about just for a few minutes, is why so much passion about the Christ? And then I want to share with you four responses or four truths that the passion of the Christ enforced in my own life. I was struggling about whether to go see this film and uh, someone, a fellow staff member, put me under the law and said, you need to go see it. If you can see Saving Private Ryan, you can see the passion of the Christ. And so I, along with Carla, went to see the passion of the Christ last week and And what I want to share with you before we take the sacrament this morning is four things that this movie did and enforced in my own life. But first, I want to call our attention to this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, because this text was the passage of Scripture that I came to in my regular morning devotional life 
On Friday morning, two days after Ash Wednesday, the the day the Passion of the Christ opened, since January, I've been reading through the New Testament. And on my regular schedule, this is where the scripture reading brought me to on Friday after the Passion of the Christ opened. And I read these verses or these words in chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I think if you have the uh, NIV in front of you and the New King James Version, your translation says, as mine does, stumbling block to the Jews. I find this translation a bit interesting because in the original language, the word here is the word scandalon, from which we get our word scandal. It says it could be read that we preach Christ crucified, a scandal a disgust to the Jews. And it was, ladies and gentlemen, because we know that it was a common belief among the Jews that any man that was to be sentenced to a death on a Roman cross must be under the curse of God. Some of our modern day translations, and I have one that I read quite often, the New Living Translation uses the word offense. But this word offense is, is, is just not strong enough. And you have to be careful with some of the modern day translations. In fact, I found one commentator who said that this could be better said that this was a death trap or curse of God. And it was so. Surely anyone going to a Roman cross must be under the curse of God and not just, not just in the way that he or she would die, but for all eternity God must turn his back on those who would suffer such a a uh, horrible death. These people must be the lowest of criminals. But that's just half of the story. Because we know from Scripture that the Jews, by the time Christ comes and he preaches this message of the gospel and he hints to his coming death, we know that the Jews were looking for a conquering Messiah. They were looking for one who would free them from the oppressive rule of the Romans. And so Paul sees this He sees this reality that the message of the cross becomes a stumbling block to the very people who should have known better. He sees this as a tragic irony that the Jews of all people would stumble over the truth. Paul also says here that it was the Jews who looked for miraculous signs. I preached on this text earlier this week, John chapter 6. You remember the story where... This great miracle that Jesus uh, did in the days of his Galilean ministry. There on that hillside in Galilee as he was preaching uh, to the multitudes. He sensed, he knew that they were hungry. And he he performed this great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took those five loaves and two fishes. And he he fed 5,000 plus that afternoon. And then we see later in the text that... That evening, Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the lake. And the next morning, the crowds discover that Jesus had crossed the lake and they go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that day we see Jesus teaching again and remembering the events of the previous day. That is that he had fed those 5,000. He had satisfied those physical hungers and that physical thirst. Jesus says to the people, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. And then the people replied, well, if this is true, then give us a sign. We want another miracle. And then Jesus replies, and I think Jesus understood 
That it didn't matter how many miracles he performed, even if he raised people from the dead, and he did that. Jesus replies, if you want a miracle, manna from heaven, like as in the days of Moses. Then he says, he makes this astonishing claim, I am the bread of life. Ladies and gentlemen, in John 7, the story continues. And the text says that hearing these words that many people turned away. And they walked away from Jesus because these were hard sayings. Ultimately, the message of a crucified Messiah would become a stumbling block to the very people who should have known better. He also says not only a stumbling block to the Jews, but Paul says it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, your translations may say Greeks. Whatever it says, I think what Paul means here is he's including all people. For Paul, as a Jewish man, in his thinking, he understood, as most Jews would, that either a person was a Jew or he was a Gentile. And so Paul is including all peoples of the world, every man and woman. And to the Gentile or to the Greeks, the message of the cross, he says, is foolishness. Now, guys, in Christ's day and in Paul's day, the world and life view of the Gentile or the Greek was fairly simple. It went something like this. The Greeks believed that matter was evil and that spirit or soul was good. And so to the Greek thinking, the goal was to, for the soul or the spirit to be free from this physical world and ultimately to, be, to live in eternity in the spirit as the gods do. And so you can see why it was to the Greeks inconceivable that a God not only could, but a God would be willing to stoop to the level of a natural world, a physical realm. And you know, the Greeks were polytheists. They believed in many gods. And one of the challenges of the Gentile man and in his thinking was how to reconcile their belief in many gods and the reality of evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And so they they came up with a word for this. It's the word apatheia, from which we get our word apathetic. See, to the Greeks, the Gentiles, they believed that the gods were indifferent to human struggle. Their conclusion was ultimately that God doesn't care about our human suffering. I'm told that there's, I've never been to the city of Rome, but I'm told that there is to this day this graffito in the city of Rome, and it depicts A worshiper standing before a crucified figure. And this crucified figure has the body of a man and the head of an ass. And at the beneath this graffito is this inscription. Alexamenos worships his God. This was their belief. That this was foolishness. That a God would come and be crucified. The incarnation plus a crucifixion was utter foolishness to Greek thinking. By the way, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Paul said in the text, it wasn't the fact that men preached the gospel that was foolish. The gospel message itself was foolish. That God would save through a crucified son. And so Paul sees another tragic irony here. It's almost the same as with the Jews. You see it? In search of ultimate reality... The Greeks, who should have known better, in search of ultimate reality, the Greeks stumble over the truth. Truth embodied 
in Jesus Christ. You remember the words of Pilate as Jesus stood before him? Pilate says or asks this question, what is truth? Well, as I've said, I saw the movie. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you this morning that the reason there's been so much passion over the passion of the Christ has little to do with the fact that the movie is filled with violence. It is a violent movie. I submit to you it has little to do with that. Also, I submit to you that it has little to do with anti-Semitism. I submit to you this morning that the real issue of a crucified Christ, the real issue that men struggle with when it comes to the message of the cross is this. The cross tells us that we have a problem, that men are in trouble, that we are guilty of sin. The cross speaks to us of our, it speaks to our inner consciences and tells us that there might be, indeed there might be a God out there. And if there is a God out there, that we've probably offended him and that one day we will have to stand before this God and give an account. Like the bumper sticker that I saw some months ago, if you're living as if there is no God, you better be right. I want to share with you what I think the passion of the Christ, the message of this movie enforces in our lives as Christians. First of all, the passion of the Christ enforces this truth, that sin, sin must be extremely horrible. Ladies and gentlemen, thing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. If you've seen the movie... You saw the greed of Judas. You saw the envy of the priest. The vacillating cowardice of Pilate. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, when I saw this movie, I didn't think about the greed of Judas or the envy of Pilate or the envy of the priest or Pilate's cowardice. I thought of my own sin, my own greed, my own envy, my own lust. And when we think of our own sin and we place our own sins against the backdrop of the scourging and the nail-pierced hands, we realize that sin truly must be really horrible. We get the first hint of sin's awfulness in Genesis chapter 3. Look there with me quickly, please. Genesis 3. Remember there in the garden that Adam and Eve disobeys the Lord and sin enters into their heart. And for the first time, Adam and Eve's heart are bent against God. There's now enmity between Adam and Eve and God. Genesis 3, verse 7, you remember these words. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This, ladies and gentlemen, stands as man's futile attempt to cover themselves against the holiness of God. And it was a futile attempt. Later in that chapter, verse 21, we see that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, this is man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But you see this, guys? God finds Adam and Eve in the garden and he takes an initiative to cover them. Adam and Eve had never seen death before. Can you imagine this scene there in the garden? They'd only heard about death. 
But now God takes animals and he kills animals to take their skin to cover Adam and Eve. Now, guys, this is just a supposition on my part. In fact, um, uh, James Boyce says this in his commentary on, uh, in Genesis chapter 3. And I think he's right. Probably the animals that were killed were probably lambs. There's that scene in the garden. Jesus takes these lambs and for the first time, Adam and Eve sees death firsthand. What a, what a horrible reality to see for the first time. Blood is spilled. And this, is a, this would become a, an ongoing lesson throughout all of the Old Testament as thousands and thousands of animals would be slain all throughout the Old Testament period to teach us this lesson that the life of the body is in the blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is what it took, a crucified son, if this was the only way a righteous God could righteously forgive the unrighteous, sin must be extremely horrible. Secondly, the passion of the cross and the passion of the Christ enforces in my life that God's love must be wonderful beyond comparison. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we see this as sin enters the hearts of Adam and Eve. The next thing we think would happen would be judgment of God. But judgment doesn't come. God postpones His judgment. It's an act of mercy. It's a, it's a prelude of the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Adam and Eve go and hide in the garden. And God comes to look for Adam and Eve. Several years ago when... My daughter was seven or eight years old. One afternoon, she was outside playing with a friend in our neighborhood, and Carla was gone. I was taking care of the kids, and a couple of hours went by, and I couldn't find Holly. I began to look for her, and ride around in the neighborhood. And first, I wasn't panicked. I just thought she'd gone in a friend's house and was playing. And I went to her best friend's house, and she wasn't to be found. It began to get dark, and panic began to set in. Couldn't find my little daughter. We lived at that time about a mile, a mile and a half from a major interstate. And the thoughts kept going through my mind how easy it would be for someone to come through our neighborhood and pick up my precious daughter and be gone and I'd never see her again. I began to panic more and more. And finally, about dark, Holly and her friend were found. They had wandered off in some woods and were playing down there. And I brought Holly home and I got her in the house that night. And there was this mixed emotion, these mixed emotions going through my mind, uh, the need to discipline as a father. And yet in the middle of that discipline, this, this strong emotion to embrace my daughter, to hold her to myself and to never let her go. Ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly what the father did in the garden. The text says that the father is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he calls out for Adam and Eve. And I submit to you that the father knew exactly where they were. In fact, I believe the father was walking toward them because he knew they needed to be found. Because he loved us, ladies and gentlemen, the father comes after us. God's love must be wonderful beyond comparison. One of my favorite hymns was written by a man by the name of George Matheson. The story goes that in about 1860 or 1882, George Matheson was a Presbyterian minister. 
And on the eve of his sister's wedding in his manse, the, the house there of the Presbyterian Church there in Scotland, he was sitting alone in this house. And he said that the words to this hymn came from him as easily as anything he'd ever, he had, anything he'd ever written, any sermon he'd ever written. It's as if the Holy Spirit was guiding his hands as he penned the words to this hymn. But he wouldn't give the, the detailed circumstances of, of, of why he wrote this great hymn. It wasn't until after his death that some of those who were closest to George Matheson said, that they believe the circumstances were this, behind the writing of this great hymn, at age 20, Dr. Matheson would told that he was going blind and there was nothing the doctors could do. And right after that, one of his, or his college sweetheart, his college fiance, told him that she did not wish to be married to a blind preacher. And so it was the result of this heartache, this lost love, 20 years later, George Matheson sat there on the eve of his sister's wedding and he penned the words to this great hymn. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul on thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my ways, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine blaze its day may brighter fairer be. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a love that not only comes after us, it's a love that will not let us go. The love of God must be a wonderful thing. Thirdly, Christ's salvation must be free. Can you imagine how offensive it is to a God when we peddle our good works at the foot of the cross, trying to merit God's favor? I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, What else could be done? What else could he do to save us? Every week I meet with a group of people who don't go to this church. I I just sit down and share scripture, a brief Bible study, and I pray with people. Some of them I don't even know. And Months ago I asked God to give me this opportunity, and he answered this prayer. And This past week I was meeting with this, this group of people and shared some scripture and prayed with them. And after it was over, a lady stayed behind and she said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. And so when the room cleared, she began to cry, tell me her story. Thirty years ago, Almost 30 years ago, she'd had an abortion. For all of these years, she'd carried the guilt of that abortion and that sin with her. And I'll call her Susan. I said, Susan, are you a believer? Are you in Christ? Are you secure in your salvation? She said, yes. I said, then this is what you need to do. You need to go to the cross and know this. That by his wounds we are healed. Ladies and gentlemen, when our consciences rise up to condemn us, where do we turn? We go to the cross. As George Matheson wrote, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red. Life that shall endless be. Christ's salvation must be free. And finally, the cross becomes for us as the people of God the most powerful incentive to holy living. The passion of the Christ 
If you've seen the movie and the passion of the Christ simply stirs your emotions and doesn't change your life, then I'll tell you something must be wrong. There is this scene in the movie, and if you haven't seen the movie, I hate to ruin it for you, but there is this scene in the movie when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying there in the garden just moments before he's betrayed. And then the serpent comes and Jesus, with his heel, crushes the head of the serpent. Ladies and gentlemen, that's taken out of Genesis chapter 3. And this is the curse upon the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, Christ, will crush your head and he will strike or you will bruise his heel. Now, here's my question. Why, guys? Why in the very chapter where sin pokes its head, where sin enters the human race, why is it here that we see the first prophecy of the coming Messiah? Well, the first answer is obvious to us. It's because we need to be rescued. A Savior, a righteous one, righteous blood must be shed for the unrighteous. But there's something else. There's another reason why we see this early prophecy of the coming Christ. And this we tend to forget. But Christ, ladies and gentlemen, he had to come to recapture what Adam lost as the perfect image of God. For as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, it is he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. What I'm saying to you is that Christ epitomizes, as the second Adam, Christ epitomizes the perfect image of God and what that image should be like. And it is Christ that we are to emulate in our own lives today. Peter wrote, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live for righteousness. That we might live for righteousness. A couple of years ago, one of the books that we were reading around here and we were encouraging you to read was John Fisher's book, On a Hill Too Far Away. Remember that book? If you haven't read the book, I think we still have copies in the bookstore. And it's, it's, a, it's a great time of the year to read Fisher's book because we're about to enter the Easter season. He wrote this book, On a Hill Too Far Away, and it centers around the story of this old Presbyterian church in Old Greenwich, Connecticut. And in this church, what's peculiar about this church is right in the center of the congregation, the center of the sanctuary, right down front is this huge cross that's been anchored in the, on the, into the floor. And he says it's, it's as if the cross is always in the way. It's always reminding us of something. And you come in the sanctuary and you have to look around the cross to see things on the stage. And it's, it's like it needs to be moved. It's, it's not... You know, it's not against the wall. It's not hanging on the wall, but it's right down front. And he uses that that story of that cross, to write this inspirational book about the message of the cross on a hill too far away. But did you read the epilogue of that book? If you didn't, go back and read the epilogue. It's, to me, it's the best part. And he, in this epilogue, John Fisher makes this disclaimer. He says, I never have been, nor will I ever be, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Old Greenwich, Connecticut. But if I were, he said, I'd start a tradition. He said, on that Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, he said, we'd have a worship service and I'd have all the people come on that gloomy Saturday. You know that Saturday that, where, when the angels held their breath? That, that depressing day when the disciples thought all hope was gone? It would be on that Saturday, he said, the Saturday between 
Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We'd have a worship service. And we'd maybe share some of our own hurts and pains and why, why so much suffering in life and why the mysteries of the cross. Why did God create the world and make it this way? And then he said we would sing the great hymns about the cross, like at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. Or when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. We'd sing these great hymns about the cross. And then he said at the end of the service, this is what I would do. I'd have 12 strong men come forward and I'd have them lift that cross out of its socket and we'd take it outside. We'd get it out of the sanctuary. Then I'd tell the people, invite them back for the morning service, Resurrection Sunday. And I'd tell every family, when you come to the service, bring, bring some Easter lilies. And we'd put those Easter lilies all across the front of the stage and along the walls. And we'd continue this tradition every year until finally the, the, the room would be so filled with Easter lilies, we'd have to move the service outside. And there we'd celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And he said, you know what I'd do after that? At the close of that Easter Sunday service, I'd have those same 12 strong men go get that cross And I'd have him bring it back and put it back in the front of that sanctuary. Because the cross will forever remind us of our call to the Christian life. The cross will, in all of its mystery and all of its pain and all of its difficulty, would stand forever as a symbol of the Christian life. For when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come And die. For he himself bore our sins in his body. On the tree. So that we might live. For righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen. The cross. Stands as our greatest motivator. To holy living. There will always be passion. Concerning the message of the cross. It was that way in the day of Christ. It's that way today. It will always be that. Because the message of the cross is a hard message. It calls us like Christ. It calls us to death. He lives so that we might live for his glory. The message of the cross is Christ in us, Christ in the world. Father, we thank you for the passion of the Christ. We thank you that because of his obedience, of his suffering, that we stand today as the people of God. We thank you that we celebrate the reality of life because one was so willing to die that we might live. Our prayer, Father, today is as your people that you would use again in our lives the message of the cross, the message of this sacrament that we're about to celebrate, the spilled blood of Christ and the broken body. Use that message to call us to forsake our sins and to live for Christ so that others might see in us the glory of the gospel. I pray, Father, for those in our midst today, who may have never tasted the richness of life and the message of the cross, may today be their day that they come to Jesus Christ.
repentant of their sins, and are born into the family of God. May this be the day of salvation for many. We pray in Christ's name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen.